Would you join me and open up your copies of God's Word to Luke's Gospel, where we'll be hearing from it in verses 27 through 32 of chapter 5. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Now, in our chapter at hand, we find ourselves only one mere chapter after the start of Jesus Christ's public ministry. And yet, we find that Christ has done quite a bit in that short expanse of time. He's already cast out demons, healed fevers, paralysis, leprosy. He's been preaching on the streets and in synagogues. And yet, somehow, in the midst of all of that, we find that he's also already come under some fire. In the midst of all that good, in the midst of all that miraculousness and selflessness, opposition to Jesus has already been on the rise in just the one chapter since he began his ministry. If you glance with me at the passage immediately preceding ours today, there towards the beginning of chapter 5, we see that Jesus is being accused of blasphemy. Persecuted already, it seems that there's those among the Pharisees and among the people of Israel that are already wanting to see him get put to death But not because of something that we would expect the death penalty for. Not because he's been, you know, uh, murdering. Not because he's been stealing. Not because he's been doing anything like that. We find that Jesus is being accused of blasphemy and opposed for healing and the forgiveness of sins. Today we're going to see yet more opposition to Christ. This time for something that just a chapter ago he was being praised for, the healing of the sick. Yet in our chapter today, it's not a physical sickness that we see Christ come and heal, yet a spiritual one, arguably a much more important one. And so, if you would, would you pray with me one more time, and then we're going to hear from God in His Word. Father, we thank You for the preaching and the hearing of Your Word. We pray that as we come to it, that You would grant us the ability to understand it, to receive it, Father, it is a two-edged sword that pierces, that divides, that goes all the way to the heart and the soul, to the intentions of our hearts. Father, it is your seed. It will accomplish the purpose for which you've purposed it. This gospel is dynamic. It's explosive. It's powerful and effective. Yet it belongs to you. And so, Father, we need the help of your Spirit. We pray that you would... Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts and make us receptive to receive it. I pray for myself and my fellow saints this morning, Lord, that you would edify us, that you would build us up. Lord, in a world, in a culture where so much negative, so much bad, so much wicked is constant, Father, we pray that you would encourage us through the preaching of your word, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the tools that we need to go out into the world and work and serve you again this week. And Father, we pray that in the areas where we need convicting, that you would do that as well. Father, I pray for any who might be here today that don't know you, or that this would be the hour upon the hearing of your word, that your spirit would grant them eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Christ for the very first time. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is indeed God's inspired, 
inerrant, holy, sufficient word, our rule of faith and life. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. May God bless the reading and the hearing of it this morning. Amen. It's common the Sunday after Reformation Day for Reformed churches such as ours to have a Reformation Day sermon. I've heard quite a few good ones on the five solas, on the doctrines of grace, but I figured as I was considering what to preach this morning, what better than the gospel? And so I hope and pray that that sits well with y'all um, as we hear his word this morning, because that's what this sermon is. It is the gospel plain and simple, because it's here in this short passage that we see very straightforwardly that Christ came for sinners. That Christ came for sinners to call them, first of all, and second and lastly, to change them. We see here this morning that Christ calls sinners and that Christ changes sinners. Christ calls sinners and Christ changes sinners. And so first, let us observe that Christ calls sinners, including those who are despised, those who are sick, and those who are unrighteous. And so we see first in verse 30 that Christ calls sinners, including those who are despised. Look with me, if you would, back at your copies of God's Word at Luke 5, verse 30. tells us, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In that day and time, there probably wasn't very many people that had a positive opinion of tax collectors. You might be thinking it's not all too different than how we feel today about tax collectors. But back then there was even an added component beyond just the taking of their money. Tax collectors in that day and time under Roman occupation were considered traitors to their people. They were considered extortioners. It was seen as though they had turned their back on their own kind. In addition to collecting the taxes for their Roman oppressors that were mandated, it was a common practice for Jewish tax collectors working for Rome to add a little surcharge on top of it to line their own pockets. Doing all of this at the expense of their brothers and sisters, their neighbors and friends. They were resented as having gained their wealth off the backs of the oppression of their people. And so you can imagine, if you would with me this morning, they, they weren't most people's favorite people. They weren't enjoyed, they weren't invited to dinner parties. And so as the Pharisees see Christ, this teacher, this rabbi eating with these people, it causes some understandable almost confusion and some frustration on the part of the religious teachers of Israel. 
We can see just by looking back at verses 29 through 30 how despised these tax collectors with them. They're in shock almost to see someone like Jesus even sitting in the same room with someone like a tax collector. And yet we see that it is exactly for people such as this tax collector. That it's exactly for people like Levi who's also called Matthew. It's for despised men and women like this that Jesus comes. It is the despise that Jesus calls and comes after. But not only does Jesus call and come after those who are despised, we see in verse 31, he comes after those who are sick. In verse 31, we read that Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, some people have misunderstood this verse and taken it to say that Jesus is in fact saying that there is some group of people who actually aren't sick, who are well in and of themselves, but that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is doing what Jesus does many times throughout the Gospels. He's using sarcasm as a tool against the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't say this to imply that the Pharisees are somehow not sick in and of themselves, that there are some people that don't need a divine physician We see clearly in God's word that in Adam, our default state is to be sick. You know, we think ourselves in the midst of a pandemic that this is is different, that this is new, that this is surprising. You know, we're used to our default state being well, not sick, but on a spiritual level, it's the opposite. That by default in Adam, we're sick. Well is something we can't achieve on our own. In 1 Corinthians 15... 22, we're told very simply, very shortly, very straightforward, in Adam, all die. Every single one of us, man, woman, and child that are born in the lineage of Adam, which is every single one of us, are born with this sickness. David mentions this in the 51st Psalm that we looked at a few weeks ago, where he says that we are brought forth in iniquity. And that it's even in sin that our mothers conceive us. That from the moment of conception, this sickness, this cancer called sin is all over us. As the late great R.C. Sproul would put it, that there is no vestigial, there is no island of righteousness that escapes this sea of depravity that humankind is born into. Now Jesus is not telling the Pharisees that there's some component of humanity that escapes the sickness. He's telling them that they are simply unwilling to admit this of themselves. And so we see that Jesus calls those who are despised, those who are sick, and also those who are unrighteous. We see him saying in verse 32 that in fact he has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you've got to understand for a Jew who had been expectedly waiting their Messiah, who had been under first Greek occupation, and then after only a short while of freedom under the thumb of Rome, they had begun to understand these messianic prophecies in terms of a military leader. They expected that when their Messiah came that he would be on horseback leading chariots to war. That this Messiah would come and do great battle with Rome and win back their freedom. Would gain them independence and freedom and they would once again be the people of Israel. 
They expected that when this Messiah come, that he would be for the righteous like the Jews, not those unrighteous Greeks that the Jews so commonly called dogs. And yet Jesus confuses them here as he looks at a tax collector who is an employee of their oppressors and says, I come not for the righteous, but for sinners like this. We see clearly in God's word that this is the truth not just of Levi, but that for you and you and you and you and me and every human being on this planet, that this is actually really great news. That Jesus comes not for the healthy, not for the admired, but for the sick, for the despised, and for the unrighteous among us. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, we're told that there is not a righteous man on earth who goes his life doing good always and never sinning. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is not a single righteous man. No, not one. In James 2.20, the Apostle tells us that even if you keep the whole law, but fail in one letter of it, you are deemed guilty concerning it all. And so as we hear these words of Christ to the tax collector Levi, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to hear them as though Christ is speaking directly to you. That Christ comes not for the righteous, but for the sick. Christ comes not for the healthy, but for the hurting. That Christ comes for the despised, the ashamed, the poor. Christ has no place in his kingdom for those who are so self-deluded that they think themselves acceptable, well, and righteous on their own. He simply has no place for that in his kingdom. But Christ welcomes with open arms those who readily admit and acknowledge their hurt, their pain, their sickness, their sin, like Levi we see here in this passage. And so as we look at this first point that Christ calls sinners, what, what do we do with that information? I think there's two distinct points of application that we could have. One for Christians in the room, those who are regenerate, those who are in relationship with Christ, and I think a latter for those who are not. For the, regener for the regenerate, I'll simply let the Apostle Paul speak to us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing to thing to bring to being things that were nothing, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are now in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast. And those who do boast, boast in the Lord. What is our takeaway as believers to this truth that Christ calls sinners? Remember the condition that you were in, brothers and sisters, when Christ called you to himself. And keep it ever present before you as we worship his grace his mercy, that he is love and that he has steadfast covenant faithfulness to those who had no place at the table. For the unregenerate, I would encourage you, I would please you to understand 
that you don't have to clean yourselves up first before Christ comes to you. And in fact, the order is the opposite. That's what's so commonly thought. I've heard it more times than I can count from family, from friends, from coworkers, from classmates. When you're engaging with them in the gospel, I'm sure you've heard it as well. That, well, I'll come to church, I'll start reading my Bible, I'll start praying, I'll, I'll start doing the Christian thing when I get my life together first. I would plead with you this morning, if, if you're here and you're not a part of Christ's family, if you've yet to have faith in Him, that that's backwards. Christ comes to you and then He turns your life around. There is no good people. There are no good people in heaven. There are only unrighteous sinners who have been made clean by the grace and mercy of Christ. You are not outside of His reach. As we looked at the confession of David a couple weeks ago, if God can forgive a man like David, who committed adultery, murder, among probably breaking the rest of the Ten Commandments ten times over in that little span of what happened, if God can forgive men like David, if God can forgive men like Jonah, if God can forgive men like me, I guarantee you He can forgive you. Don't be in denial about your situation either, though. Christ is the one who does it, not you. So often, so often we hear the phrase that someone is searching for Christ, as though Christ were the one that was the one that was lost. Christ isn't lost. If you're here today, still dead in your sins, still apart from his covenant community still lacking faith in Him and His love and His sacrifice, it is not you that goes looking for Christ. I guarantee you it is Christ who will come looking for you. It is Christ who will give you faith. It is Christ who will give you repentance. It is Christ who will bring you and give you a seat at His table. And for both, for all of us here this morning, as we hear this news that Christ comes for sinners, hear the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. That this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so first we see that Christ saves sinners. That He comes for sinners. That He calls sinners. And secondly, we see that Christ changes sinners. This is the one that sometimes we don't like to hear. <laughs> I think everyone loves to hear that Christ comes for sinners. I think everyone loves to hear that Christ calls sinners except for maybe the Pharisees. It begins to bug us maybe a little bit when we hear the news that Christ may come for us, but He doesn't leave us the way He finds us. He, he changes us. Christ calls sinners. He calls them just as you are. But He doesn't leave you that way. This is crucial to our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of discipleship and our understanding of what Christ does for us. It's important that we make both clear. That we don't emphasize one to the detriment of the other. He calls sinners just the way they are, but He does not leave them that way. And so let us observe secondly in our passage that Christ changes sinners. And then He does so in order that they would submit, in order that they would serve, and in order that they would repent. And so we see that to follow Christ is to submit. Look with me at verse 28. Right after, we'll start in 27 for some context. 
Jesus goes out and sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he says to him, follow me. Notice the order. Christ says, follow me. Christ takes the initiative. And then what is Levi's immediate response? And leaving everything, he gets up and follows him. This is genuinely leaving everything. This is what Matthew did. If we had been reading through Luke's gospel, this is a pattern that's already beginning to form and it'll continue throughout Luke's gospel. If you look back to Luke chapter 5, verse 11, we see the same thing taking place. That when Jesus calls his first disciples, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This isn't abnormal. This isn't just for Levi. This isn't just for the twelve. It is a constant refrain throughout each of the four Gospels. This call to leave everything. Matthew 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 28. They say, see, we have left everything and followed you. Matthew 19, 27, we see Matthew's retelling of the exact same event. And Jesus will later make this call to change abundantly clear in Luke chapter 14, where he gives it as a basically a requirement of being a disciple. It is to leave, it is to forsake everything in our following of Christ. It may seem harsh, but this is a necessary component. God's ultimate plan is not, brothers and sisters, for our happiness... It is not for our health, wealth, or material prosperity. His ultimate plan is to bring everything under the headship of Christ Jesus. That every knee shall bow. That every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. We see that made clear in Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 2, and on every page, I would argue, of God's Word. That is the goal. To bring everything on this planet under the recognizable dominion of our Lord Christ Jesus. We can only do that as disciples when we have nothing else in competition in our hearts and minds with the place that belongs solely to Him. Christ must be preeminent in our hearts, in our affections, in our minds, in our actions... And we see as we look throughout the Gospels that this is going to look a little different for each believer. This isn't going to be the exact same cookie cutter for everyone who follows after Christ. If you think about the fishermen, they left everything, but what was it really that they had to leave? A a, a rickety boat and a paddle? They didn't really leave much in, in the realm of material possessions. It looked a little bit different for them. You look at someone like Matthew, this gets a little bit more extreme. Matthew would have been rich. We could say he was loaded, right? He had respect. He had a seat at the table with the Romans, right? He brought them money. For him, this is a little bit more serious. As we think to our modern time, this call to discipleship, to leave everything, is going to look a little bit differently. For some, that looks like packing up a backpack, selling everything else and going off to China or to Russia or North Korea, very legitimately, literally risking life and limb for the sake of the gospel of Christ. For others, this looks like a mother at home with her children, sacrificing her time and her sleep 
to make sure that her children are raised in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. For some of you, that may genuinely look like at your workplace, working hard even when you're tired to the glory of Christ. This looks a little bit differently from Christian to Christian, but the call is the same regardless. Christ is to be preeminent. We must leave and forsake anything that struggles for the position that belongs solely to Him. To follow Christ is to submit. But we also see in verse 29 that to follow Christ is to serve. It is to serve. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. We see Levi. I think it's interesting and it's something we might be tempted to just skip over as we're reading through it. Like, yeah, Levi made them dinner, right? If you're from Mississippi, like, hey, that's that's pretty normal. You invite somebody over for supper, right? What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. As soon as he begins following Christ, it seems like a natural thing for Levi now all of a sudden to immediately want to serve his Lord. We see Levi serving him. We see it consistent throughout God's word elsewhere. In Galatians 2.20, we read that Paul, Paul would have been one of these men that were mocking Levi here in this passage. Paul persecuted the church. And yet we read in Galatians 2.20, Paul saying that he has been crucified with Christ. That is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And that every day the life that he now lives in the flesh, as long as he's on this earth, Paul says, he lives it to Christ. We see it in Romans 12.1 where Paul pleads with us. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To follow Christ is to submit. To follow Christ is to serve. And to follow Christ is to repent. To follow Christ is to repent. We see this as well in verse 32. Where Jesus gives us the main reason he calls sinners in the first place. That he calls them to repentance. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so often in our modern day context, and I'm not just speaking of the world, sadly, I'm speaking of many a church or two in evangelical Christianity. That it's become all too common to take the first half of this and leave off the rest. So many love to hear that Christ comes to call sinners... And they leave off those last two words that he calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. We see it here. We see it throughout the rest of God's word. That it's not just for Matthew. It's for each of us. In Acts 17.30, he tells us that the times of ignorance God overlooked. Basically saying, don't get hung up on what you've spent the rest of your life doing when you were in darkness. If he has now given you light, the times of ignorance he's overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's pretty broad. Right? No, one, no one falls out of that category. He calls all people everywhere to repent, meaning not just unbelievers as a one-time thing to come to faith, but me and you. And he calls us daily to repentance. So I think we have to ask, what is repentance? It's not just feeling bad. As we look at our confessions and catechisms, feeling bad is definitely part of it. Right? Um, you know, my, my son already, he's at that age where he understands that two-letter word, no. 
He doesn't understand a lot more, but he understands, no, we first realized it a couple of months ago, he loves, I don't know why kids are attracted to electrical outlets, like a, like a, like a moth to a lantern. But as soon as he got able to reach them, he started going for them, trying to stick his finger in them, trying to eat them. And very quickly we learned, within a few times, honestly, of saying no in a stern tone, I remember that moment that I realized he knew that it was wrong. He began crawling towards the outlet, and he looked back to see if I was watching. And I thought to myself, okay, now I know. (laughs) You know better. Now I know that you know better. I want my son, when I say no to him, and he knows that he's done wrong, I certainly want him to feel bad. I don't think that's mean. If you think that's mean, I'm just going to assume you don't have kids. I've only got one, and I already understand that. When he disobeys his mother and I, I want there should be a part of him that feels bad when he's caught. But I also don't want it to just end there. What's the use in feeling bad if it doesn't result in some tangible change? And that's what repentance in is. It's literally a change of mind which leads in turn to a change of one's actions, thoughts, and words. It's a 180. It is a shift from what you were doing to doing something entirely new and different. Now, what does that most obviously, tangibly look like? I want to take this from being something up here. Right? Okay, we know what it means. That's good, well, and dandy, and fine. What does that look like in the here and now? What's that going to look like tomorrow? What's that going to look like the next day? What does that obviously tangibly look like in our lives? How do we take that definition and bring it down to something that we can do, see, touch, and feel? Well, I would argue that it looks a lot like obeying God's commandments. As Martin Luther once said, we are indeed saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. Let me say that again. We are indeed saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which remains alone. We are indeed saved, justified by faith, 100% apart from works. But it is a faith that if it is genuine, that will very soon begin possessing and showing works. R.C. Sproul said that genuine love for Jesus manifests itself in obedience to his commandments. That genuine love for Jesus manifests itself in obedience to his commandments. And just in case we think that the late, great R.C. Sproul was being a little bit too harsh, I think he was just paraphrasing Jesus, was he not? Didn't Jesus himself say in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Not always perfectly. Not always entirely. We see that from the lives of men like Peter was arguably one of Jesus' favorites, right, if we can say that. And yet Peter was the one that denied him thrice. This doesn't always mean perfectly. Like I said in my prayer at the beginning, sanctification, as much as I wish it was instantaneous, isn't. It's progressive. But it does mean for the regenerate, you know, what do we do with this? I think it does mean that we should live a changed life. That we should live a changed life. That we should be different than the secular, the pagan, the idolatrous, the unbelieving, the unregenerate world around you. And that job is honestly being made easier for us, I would argue, as we see society degrading and declining almost on a daily, unprecedented rate more and more around us. 
as we see evil being called good and not only ignored and being okay with, but celebrated, we should begin to stand out all the more. Not by doing extraordinary, not by having to go to necessarily North Korea, that might be what the Lord has for you, but even in the monotonous day-to-day obedience, it'll begin to become more and more obvious as the world around us continues on this trajectory that there's something about you, brother and sister, that's different. As our society begins to look more and more like what Paul describes in Romans 1, it should become more and more apparent of you what Paul describes in Galatians 2.20. Sanctification, like I said, is not instantaneous, but it is progressive. I'm, I'm not a sculptor. Uh, if, if I was given a hammer and a chisel, I, I would make nothing but a mess. But I do know enough to know how the process works. That you start out with a flat slab of marble or whatever you're working with. It's ugly, it's, it's not pretty, it's unrefined. And strike by strike, it begins to take shape and it begins to take form. Little bit by little bit, day by day, hour by hour, week after week, it begins to look more and more like whatever the image that the sculptor is basing it off of. I can think of no better illustration and example of the work of sanctification in a believer's life. It might start out ugly. It might start out not pretty and unrefined. And it might take a long time. But day by day, little bit by little bit, the Holy Spirit looking at Christ begins to form us day by day, week by week, a little bit more after His image. And so those who have been changed, we should strive to live a changed life. And we should know that even when we are full-blown struggling to do it, because, I mean, some days are harder than others. I know I'm not the only one that feels that. That even when we are struggling to do so, we have this confidence as good Reformed Christians that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. You are not the one with the hammer and the chisel. Christ is. And that gives me great peace of mind. Christ changes those whom he calls. He leads his sheep. He takes care of his bride. Even when we're not doing a good job of it at all. For the unregenerate, I plead with you to understand that only Christ can enable you to do so. If you leave this place and your takeaway is that I need to do, 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 do in order for Christ to save me, I've done a poor job. That is not Christ's call on the unregenerate this morning. The call for the unregenerate is Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He calls sinners. He calls the unrighteous. He calls the despised and the shamed and the broken. And He begins to change you. And He begins to form you. But my brothers and sisters, it's not going to be perfect. It might be a slow process. But as we look back on last year, last decade, we should be encouraged to be able to see tangible ways that we have been conformed a little bit more to His image. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, Christ came for sinners. Christ came for sinners first to call them and secondly and lastly to change them. He calls sinners, including those who are despised, those who are sick, and those who are unrighteous. And Christ changes sinners in order that they would submit, serve, and repent. And so if you would join me now as we go to God in prayer. 
And as we go to God to praise Him for the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of Christ that He came to save sinners of whom I and you are the foremost. And praise Him for the grace and mercy of Christ that He doesn't leave a single one of us the way that He found us. Would you join me now in prayer? Almighty Father, we thank You for this day, this Lord's day. We thank You for the rest that we receive these ordinary means of grace that we receive. Father, we pray that as we go out from this place, as we begin our normal weeks, our normal routines, Father, that we would be built up and encouraged by this truth. That Christ came for us when we had nothing to offer. And then He changes us and makes us righteous, makes us His own. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would help us to remember this as we get up, And as we lay down, as we go throughout our day and everything in between, that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ who calls sinners just like us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.